Welcome to the Apartment Operators Podcast, where you can learn from experienced operators what it really means to be an apartment operator. No fluff, no sugarcoating, just the raw, unfiltered truth of the ups and downs of operating multifamily communities. Welcome, everybody, to the Apartments Operator Podcast. This is Joseph Goslan, and today we have a special guest, Devin Elder. And Devin has past experience with flipping, and he's syndicating, and he's really doing a lot of great things. So without further ado, welcome to the show. Hey, Joseph. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, why won't you just take a few minutes and tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your company, what are you guys doing? Uh, give them a little bit of background. Yeah, sure. So my company is based in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I was born and raised here in San Antonio and for the most part have lived here most of my life. Uh, got into real estate back in 2012 doing the the Burr strategy on single family stuff and saw the opportunity and potential there and just started buying a ton of rental houses and really got the real estate bug. And so after a while, I wanted to uh, replace my six-figure W-2 income. That was kind of the next milestone. And so uh, I was was able to uh, do that in about two and a half years. Looking back, it's, it seems like... Uh, Oh, hey, it was inevitable. But at the time, it was just a ton of hard work and burning the candle at both ends and learning and buying. Uh, but really, for me, the goal was always to end up in multifamily. I had some friends early on that were doing it, but they were like, uh, they had a lot of money. And so uh, I, that was kind of a barrier for me starting out. I didn't really have any money starting out. So I did the single family route for a number of years, built up some capital and a track record. Um, and then, and then got into syndication and that business has, has grown a lot in the last few years, started syndicating, you know, hundred plus unit deals uh, all around San Antonio and, and, and one of them just outside. So that's where I spend about 90% of my time today is syndicate, you know, looking at B and C hundred plus unit stuff in uh, my backyard here in San Antonio. Thank you. How big is your current portfolio? How many units? Um, 1070, uh, at, at last count and we're, we're adding another 124 units in, um, probably by the time this podcast comes out, we'll have closed on it. That's phenomenal. That's uh, over a thousand units. That, that's very impressive. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what kind of class you guys like and, and, and what are you looking for? Do you buy value add? Do you buy stabilized? Uh, is it always San Antonio? Are you looking at other markets? Give us a little bit of an idea. Yeah. So our criteria, which frankly, you know, I'm considering narrowing a little bit because I feel like maybe we're, we're looking at too many deals. You know, criteria is really important when you kind of set out to do this because it's going to dictate um, everything. It's going to dictate, you know, what kind of investors you have. It's going to dictate maybe who your legal team is, who your property management team is, who your lenders are. So we've, we've focused historically on just hundred plus unit deals. And that's typically a hundred to, you know, mid to high two hundreds. We haven't really underwritten any 500 unit deals. Those tend to be kind of those big institutional players. Um, maybe one day I'll buy a 500 unit, you know, in one shot, but it seems to be like a hundred to 250 right now is what we're focused on. And these are B and C assets. And I, I kind of like each, for different reasons. Um, you know, we're looking at 1970 to 1990 construction for the most part, you know, on a B asset mid eighties in a good area, I think you've got, uh, you can make the argument that, um, your tenants are going to be a little nicer on the property. You've got 
a higher uh, income level with those tenants and uh, and so forth. But then we're also seeing some of these kind of 70s C areas where there's just a lot of meat on the bone in terms of the property's been neglected or you need to retenant the property. So I like both, you know, I like both strategies and have done both. Um, and it's really, you know, the whole thing, as you know, is, is investor return driven. So we're underwriting to hit a certain metric for investors. And then we work backwards from there and figure out, you know, how can we conserv conservatively underwrite these things and then go in and, and execute a, a value add strategy. Um, the, the, Typical value add that we're doing is, is I would say probably 6K a door, uh, all in, you know, inside, exterior, interior upgrades. Um, I, would, I would look at something a little lighter or a little heavier, but um, there was a deal that we did that was, you know, north of 15K a door. Really wild uh, experience. Learned a ton, but not really um, jumping up and down to sign up for another one of those anytime soon. Yeah, 15K a door, that's a lot of we have. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I know we have a few very heavy lifting projects ourselves and it's very time consuming and there's a lot of contractors and there's a lot of balls up in the air. Uh, so that's a good segue. Uh, with a portfolio of a thousand units, get, try to give us a little bit of a picture of how your organization looks like. Uh, do you self-manage? Do you use um, third party? Uh, do you have asset managers? Just a little bit of your organization. Yeah, great point. So we do, at least at this stage, we do exclusively third party. And I think that's a very important part of our strategy and being able to grow is that we're not also building a management company. Now, um, I have lots of friends that, that have vertically integrated companies, you know, and, and I think there's, uh, I don't think there's a right or wrong way. For me, it's definitely third party is the right way because I don't have to do HR and, and build out a whole other company around that. And, and that's, that's one of the key reasons, uh, key things that's allowed us to scale, right? So I also want to be in a position, so third party property management across the board, whole portfolio, we're using one, two, three, um, three different management companies. And that kind of, um, that may, that may not, may, may not always be that way, but I feel like right now, uh, I get to learn a lot from, you know, get different perspectives, but then I also get some, it's kind of some accountability for them. Like, Hey, nobody's got the whole portfolio and they know Devin's got other management companies on other projects. And I feel like that's kind of an advantage there to keep, keep folks uh, honest. Um, so that's a huge part of being able to scale the business. I purposely set out to build a large unit count portfolio, but I don't want to have a lot of overhead. You know, I don't want to be in a, in a, be in a position where I need to acquire two properties this year to make payroll. I just don't want to be in that position. And fortunately, I'm not in that position. I have a couple other uh, revenue generating companies that, I'm in, that I own. And so if we close a deal this year, stellar. If we close zero deals, that's not going to, you know, I'm going to be bummed because I want to buy more deals, but you know, there's no big payroll number that's waiting. So really it's just, um, the third party management companies, myself as a principal of the company, I have one full-time assistant that helps a lot, um, with, you know, all kind of admin activities. And then, um, I'm hiring an asset manager for one of our current projects, but on a project basis. So they're going to asset manage one asset for me. It's not a full-time payroll and the property's going to pay for that. And that's, you know, talk to me in a year, 18 months and I'll, I'll fill you in on how that goes. But that I'm trying to do that experiment. If they don't work out 
and they then I, and I let them go and then I'm asset manager that's fine but my goal is to start bringing in some asset management resources to free up my time to really focus on you know finding the next deal and making sure we're lining up the equity so I'm kind of at a point where I need more asset management resources. We're trying it out on one property on kind of a project basis. Uh, and we'll, you know, we'll see if that's viable kind of for continuing to grow the portfolio. Yeah. So, so you have three property management companies that you work with. How did you select them? Right. What was your criteria? What process did you go through? Uh, if you can pick one or two qualities that you really um, looking for in a third party property management. Yeah, for sure. So I think the the first quality is just fit for the asset um, and making sure that they the management company has done similar assets and that they're comfortable and you're not trying to take a, you know, a B plus kind of management company and shove them on some just super rough C property where they're not going to know what they're doing. So fit is, is number one. And then two is just is, is, I guess, could be boiled down to responsiveness. You know, are the financials coming? on time consistently um, and are they responding to, to our requests? Are they making all of our meetings when we're having our, you know, usually a weekly call with the PM to go over our KPIs. And so the responsiveness is, is one there. And then they need to have a, they need to have a local presence where, where we are and own other assets in the area. I think that's kind of, that's, that's a requirement that, you know, I've, I've wanted to stick to for these. So beyond that, you know, it, a lot of it comes down to like any vendor, um, who's recommended them, what's their relationship like with other people maybe that I already know. Um, and that's kind of holds true for any vendor. You know, it's like you can go, uh, look in the business journal or the phone book, but ultimately, you know, I want, I want a referral from somebody. Yeah, and that's always a, a good start when somebody refers them to, right? So uh, you have knowledge of firsthand uh, experience with them. Uh, what I found, and, and I'd love to hear your insights about that with third-party property management, um, everybody can run a software you know, for property management. Everybody can pull out reports. Uh, the most critical skill that I think a property management should have is a good hiring skill. Because I've seen properties rise and fall over who are the people on site that run it. So um, hiring and supervising their people seems to me as the most important skill in the property management. Uh, I'd like to hear your experience, your insights about that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I've seen that play out in a million ways. I mean, I've seen it play out on our own properties. I've seen it play it out on, on properties where that we're looking to acquire that are... <laughs> are good assets they've been running the ground by like a couple of bad people that are you know um you know, not to everybody's got a role to play but you know if somebody's that's that's um kind of an hourly person uh it, it has this massive impact on the property i've always kind of marveled at that that we raise millions of dollars for these assets the bank gives us another five million we've got a million dollar capex budget and it's all riding on uh, can the leasing agent close a close a deal you know that's a lot riding on that person and so i completely agree it's uh the real estate's the easy part 
the numbers is the easy part. It's having a person in there that can execute. And of course, you know, that all comes down to what kind of hiring and training program does the uh, property management company have. And that's another thing that I personally just don't want to build out because I know how much work that takes to build, to build a talent bench. Right. And so I think one of the advantages we have with some of the management companies that we use they're active in this market. They know the assets in the market and they've got a talent bench so that when we buy a property, they could say, Hey, we already have a, you know, a bunch of applicants we've talked to that we didn't hire for the last property, but we can kind of bring them right in. So you got to have that deep bench of a talent and then you got to have a regional manager that's going to be able to um, stay on top of those folks and, and get there. But it's, it's all about the people and it's amazing how important it, you know, let's say a leasing agent is to, to the success of the entire investment. Yeah, the listing agent, the, the manager on site. Um, and I've seen properties go, like you said, they get tanked real fast if it's the wrong person that runs the show there. Um, right. So um, how do you, I heard you say you have a weekly meeting with them. Um, how do you, or how deep are you engaged in the day-to-day, -day, right? Are you uh, talking to the on-site team? Are you going to visit the property? If you do, how often? Uh, give us a little bit of how you manage the management company. Yeah, well, I hire the management company and then I have some expectations of what they do. And I, for the most part, want to let them do their job. So we have the weekly call with the, with the regional and go over our different KPIs. What was traffic like? What did, uh, what traffic sources uh, did those, you know, did, did those leads come from? What are our conversion rates? Just kind of standard sales stuff, right? What are the conversion rates on those leads? Um, and then, you know, what are we looking at in terms of open tickets for maintenance? What are we looking at as far as occupancy projections over the next, you know, 30 and 60 days? So there's kind of a standard set of metrics that I want to see. If we're doing renovations on a project, how are those coming along? Where are the budget's coming in? What, uh, what rent premium are we getting for our renovations? And just kind of staying on top of that at a high level. Um, most of that can be handled in my in my experience and with our existing portfolio, most of that can be handled on those calls. Um, and then we're, we're really just looking for outliers, right? We're looking for anomalies in those numbers. We know we said our, we're going to rehab X amount of units per month. Are we, is there an anomaly there or are we, or are we hitting that? Right? So there's a lot of data, a lot of KPIs we're looking at, but mostly I'm looking for the anomalies. Why is, why are leads down this week or, you know, why are leads up or just anything that's outside the norm. So that's kind of how I approach that piece of it. But then I also approach it kind of from another angle that, you know, to keep the property management company um, kind of on their toes is just to go visit the property uh, at, you know, unscheduled intervals and just drop it on the staff, right. And check in. And I'm very clear. It's not my role to motivate the staff or to, you know, uh, give them dictates. I work through, through our regional to, to let them do their job. And there's that hierarchy, but I also do want everybody to know that Devin's going to pop up and be walking through units on any property in any given time during the week. So I spend a fair bit of time doing that. Um, you know, I'd say there's at least once or twice a month I'm on site at every property doing that and, and just kind of going through. And I like to talk to the maintenance staff kind of one-on-one -on -one and, and not necessarily grill them on anything. I'm not there to crack the whip, right? They don't report to me. Um, you know, the, the, the management company reports to me, but that individual has their, it has their chain of command and I want to respect that. But I also want them to know that, that I'm on site. I'm not looking around 
or, or I'm not some California owner that's, uh, you know, hasn't been to the property in three years, right? Although I love California owners. Um, if any, anybody wants to sell me a property, <laughs> by all means, give us a call. Yeah. <laughs> California owners and California investors, right? That's right. Yep. Okay. Yep. okay. So, uh, and you, sometimes it's the former becoming the latter. Uh, so, uh, so you're on site once or twice, you talk to the team. Um, do you bring ideas to the table or are you completely hands off with, um, letting the property management do their thing? Because I, I can see how working with three companies, you'll see one company do, let's say a pool party and you'll suggest the other two, Hey, that works great for retention, why won't you do the same, right? So, so do you try to cross-pollinate between the companies? I absolutely do, and that's kind of the, one of the reasons that I, that I like this setup, is because you're getting, you're getting different perspectives from, from folks. And um, granted, if a management company's got 10,000 units, you know, they've certainly seen a lot, and they're gonna teach me a lot too, but I feel like there's a, a lot of opportunity for cross-pollination uh, in any business, right? Um, you know, where you've got the opportunity to maybe get out of the rut a little bit, explore some different ways of doing things. So that's certainly been the case for me in property management. So if I've got, you know, I, I don't care where the idea came from. If it's a good idea, let's implement it. And if I can, if I can share that, that's going to make our portfolio do better. That's going to make, that's going to be a nugget for the property management company to pick up and implement elsewhere. So absolutely. I think there's, there's an advantage there. Now, you know, in the future, we may streamline and consolidate, and maybe that'd make the asset management piece a little easier for us to kind of have one throat to choke. Uh, but it's also a lot of eggs in one basket, right? So we're, we're enjoying kind of that cross-pollination idea right now, and we'll see if that's, you know, viable in the, in the years to come. But right now, I think we do see some of that. So uh, I'm, I'm, it's a two-way street. I'm always willing to provide ideas, but at the same time, um, I'm amenable to hearing stuff too, because Look, if a company's been in business 20, 30 years and they've got tens of thousands of units, you know, I'm going to listen to what their suggestions on stuff, right? That's what I hired them for. Yeah, of course. And, and that's one of the big benefits I, I like with working with third-party property management is I get to learn a lot. Yep. Uh, so, so that opens the door for me. If sometimes somewhere in the future uh, uh, we decide to do self-management, then I have the opportunity right now to absorb all that knowledge, all those procedures, all those ideas along the way. Uh, with Absolutely. that said, um, give us a few examples of um, just things you guys do on site for retention or for leasing or just kind of activities that are a little bit unique and, and interesting. Yeah, so we've done different things. We did a property. Um, there's kind of the obvious stuff, right? It's usually we have some CapEx dollars up front for either a rebrand or some kind of exterior improvement, right? I mean, solar screens are one of my favorite things. It's relatively low cost, creates a lot of uniform look on the property just to make people feel like they're living in a little bit nicer place, right? Or maybe even a much nicer place in some cases if we're doing a heavy lift. So in terms of just retention and creating the nice feel there, uh, other things like making it safe, safe and clean, right? That's the standard. So if there's a safety element there that's been an issue, we want to fix that as quickly as possible. And sometimes on these properties, there is. Um, so we need to go back through, and that's not necessarily like a, a retention policy. It's just an overall community policy. We want this to be a safe place 
for people to live. And, it, you know, some folks just have to go to, to, to facilitate that goal, right? So just making sure that we're, a lot of times, amazingly, you know, these management companies, or if it's uh, self-managed when we're taking it over, you know, they're not doing the screening. They're not doing a three, three times income requirement for rent, you know, and so you can get a lot of undesirable uh, folks in there. And so we got to do a lot of, a lot of times we got to do that on the front end, just kind of clean it up. Um, so if that's going to help make, that's going to help facilitate that clean and safe goal, uh, make the property nicer. Uh, a lot of times we'll go in through and remodel the office, make the office really nice. And so we'll do those kind of things. Then there's things like uh, resident events. We'll do pool parties or barbecues, or sometimes we'll pick a theme. I mean, I don't, I don't think any of that stuff is rocket science, but you know, uh, we've got pretty good weather right now in Texas. So you know, we do a, a spring party or, or uh, you know, we had a rodeo theme uh, event. There was a property that we, was a pretty big lift we did in a, in a really relatively small town. And we had the Chamber of Commerce come out and do a ribbon, you know, ribbon cutting ceremony and everything. And, and uh, so just things like that to just kind of show people that they're, that, that the ownership group is, is, is interested. Cause you know, a lot of the times these things are just kind of neglected and, you know, people are carrying out their lives in kind of a subpar environment. So just going in, a lot of it comes down to money, right? You just come in with some CapEx dollars, make the improvements, fix what's wrong, and then try and set up the um, system so that if somebody's got a broken fan, they don't have to, you know, they don't have to put up with it for that long. It's really like super basic, but just staying on top of the, stay on top of the work orders and getting those things um, taken care of. We'll also do different things like uh, on renewals. Maybe we'll offer to upgrade, you know, a fan in a bedroom uh, or little things like that because, you know, it's obviously easier for any business to keep an existing customer than to go acquire a new customer, right? So we want to try to keep folks on that are qualified as much as possible. And so we might have little um, kind of incentives to keep them on board for, you know, another, another lease renewal cycle. And then maybe that's a unit that we don't have to actually go in and do a, a full, you know, $4,000 um, uh, rehab on, or, or even a, even a turn on, you can just kind of keep them in place. So we'll do little things like that where you're, where you're offering, you know, a, a relatively minor upgrade, but, you know, they live there, so they're going to benefit from it every day. And that can be a good, uh, relatively low cost trade-off to kind of keep them, keep them in there. Yeah. Uh, so many great nuggets in this. Uh, I want to just to emphasize a couple of things that you said, right. Um, safe and clean that, that is extremely important in, especially a C-class environment, but in any, really any environment, uh, we've had a few properties that we bought that were pitch black at night and it doesn't cost a lot of money to put up lights and, and strong LED lights everywhere. And that immediately helps the residents feel safer and at the same time reduces your liability risk of somebody falling in, in the parking lot. Right. right. So, so uh, and, and clean doesn't cost money. Right. You make sure that your team do grounds in the mornings and so on. So clean doesn't cost you anything. And it really changes the atmosphere in a community when there's trash everywhere on the floor or when it's clean and there's nothing on the floor. So just wanted to reiterate what you were saying. It's really important, uh, safe and clean. Um, the other thing that uh, you mentioned was uh, making sure they get their work orders done on time. And that's really comes down to people want to feel taken care of, right? If I'm right. here and I'm paying rent and something doesn't work, I want someone to address it 
fast and, and get it done and leave the apartment clean when they leave. So, so that's uh, um, definitely another uh, important piece in, in what you were saying. And then lastly, <coughs> I like what you said about the renewal. Uh, we take it a little bit further out and we look at the major items that are in the apartment. And if the carpet is torn or something is not working um, and they just never reported to us, right? Uh, we try to walk the units around 90 days out before the expiration. So when we do have the conversation about renewal, it's talking about, okay, we saw your carpet is torn. We're willing to go ahead and, and, and upgrade that for you or change it for you uh, if you renew with us for another year. And the math is very simple. If they move out, you're going to have to do the carpet anyways. Yeah. So, so might as well go ahead and do it. Give them the feeling that you take care of them and get a renewal uh, for another 12 months, hopefully with a little bump in rent. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if they move, you're doing the carpet and you're probably doing a lot more than that. Exactly. You, know, you may capture that rent bump, but you just spent a thousand dollars or three or four thousand dollars for a nominal rent bump you know it's it's definitely worth it to take care of your people i like that yeah so um you do a lot of uh, value add right so can you tell us a little bit about one project that you had uh what how did it look like when you came in what did you guys do to the property and what was uh, the outcome of it yeah Man, um, I find myself as the years and the projects go on, um, you know, going after things that are less and less value add, right? Like they're all value add, but like I'm, I'm like a five or six K a door guy now. Um, we've done some stuff with, with, with heavier lift. So th there was a project we bought last year. Uh, it was closer to 10 K a door. It was, I, I have to pull up my numbers, but it was around there. Really interesting property. Um, it's gone well. We're stabilized now, so I can, you know, uh, laugh at this stuff, but it was, it was a freaking heavy lift, man. Um, it was a lot of Section 8. It was um, just cut to the bone expenses from the ownership group, right? It was a... Uh, it was a family type deal. So, you know, the uncle was doing the plumbing and the son was, uh, you know, running the management. The, the dad was kind of cracking the whip. Um, but, you know, very, very little expenses. And then it was also, a, it was 106 units at uh, a takeover, but the property was built in 1974 as a 130 unit property. So somebody had converted it uh, ostensibly to capture some kind of section eight, you know, rent deal on a four bed, they're calling it a four bedroom, but you had these uh, crazy units with spiral staircases in between them. And it was, it was just kind of a circus. So bought that long story short, converted it from, you know, a lot of section eight, all bills paid property to uh, at, you know, 106 unit section eight, all bills paid to 130 unit um, market rent residents paying utilities. And so there was a lot was a lot to change during there. So uh, um, one of the nice things about that particular project is we, we uh, got the loan, but we actually had the CapEx was, uh, was cash. So we, we were able to go in like really quickly and not worry about bank draws and just kind of knock out the rehabs. But it was an interesting project taking, you know, doing all the unit conversions and, and, and everything and, uh, you know, kind of having to retenant the property during, during the process. So it was pretty wild, uh, pretty wild ride, but it's stabilized now. Um, it's producing 
good cash flow. You know, we're, we, we're hitting our pro forma. Um, you know, that property we may, may actually sell a little bit sooner than kind of the five-year projected hold period. Uh, and that should do real well for investors if we, if we do that a little sooner than, than anticipated. Um, but it was everything. I mean, I think you just, you know, you have to budget for a lot of economic vacancy when you do a project like that, because, you know, the property was 92% physical when we bought it right and that, that looks good and the, the broker's gonna trumpet that and you might be able to get a loan on that too right um but but ultimately if you've got a retenant a property a lot of times you don't know how uh you know how low you're gonna have to scoop on that occupancy and it's it can be pretty wild you know so you you got to really understand how low you're going to take that occupancy and make sure you you raise enough money if you're doing a syndication to float any type of occupancy challenges that you're going to have while you turn it around. Cause uh, you know, rule of thumb is it's going to take longer and cost more than, than you thought. Right. So you try to pad that as much as possible. And um, it can be a real balancing act when you're doing a, a retenanting like that. You're doing a lot of construction. You are um, you're still trying to run the business, you know, so you're just kind of adding like layers of complexity. And I think you just have to be up for that. One of the things in my background was I started out flipping houses, you know, and I was flip one, two, and I got it to a point where I, you know, had 20 flips going at a time. And so I had to really develop a lot of systems and processes and tolerance for that kind of um, craziness. And I, and I, I have that tolerance and that skill set. So I think that translated well to doing like these big, uh, big renovations on apartments. That sounds like a hell of a ride. Um, you touched uh, uh, about two different terms in, in your um, answer here. And I want to kind of take it back a little bit for the people that don't know the terms. Uh, you mentioned um, physical uh, occupancy versus economic occupancy. Can you give the audience a couple of words about the difference? Yeah, physical just means that uh, let's say a property is 100 units and it's 90% physical occupancy. That means there's 90 um, of those units have a person in them. So they're being physically occupied. They're not empty. So that seems good. And I think, you know, sometimes uh, the conversation stops there. But really, who cares how many bodies are in units? You want to know who's actually paying rent. And so that's economic occupancy. And you could have a property that's 90% physical occupancy and 70% economic occupancy. And that's the real number. In fact, it's, it's almost better in some cases to have an empty unit than to have somebody in it that's not paying because they may trash it. You're, or you, you know, you're going to have to go through an eviction process that costs time, money, and energy, you know? So sometimes just having bodies in there is, is, is not enough. And on the buy side, you got to watch out for that too, because sometimes owners will just fill up a property with bodies that are, uh, they might be paying their rent today, but they don't really qualify. And then, and then you've got a lot of uh, what I would call professional tenants. They know all the ins and outs of how to uh, skirt the legal system and, 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 and kind of drag things out as long as they can. And so you just got to be aware of that stuff. So physical occupancy, that's great that there's bodies in there, but you really need to know what, how, many, how many of those people are paying rent. And sometimes on the value-add deals, those numbers are very far apart. And it's... Uh, uh, can be a shock, I think, for some people to take over a property and just watch that occupancy go, boop. You know, we had one property that was 75% physical at takeover. Um, pretty bad 
already. And, you know, economic was a little lower than that. And we had to take the property down to 58% occupancy before we started climbing back up. And so you've got a model um, being able to go down to, to that occupancy before you, before you bring it back up. And so on that particular project, we modeled 30% economic vacancy for all of year one to say, Hey, you know, we're, we're going to have to take it from 75 down into the fifties and then back up. And over a whole year we'll be, you know, we'll be better than, than uh, 70%, but uh, it could just be, it's just gotta be something you gotta be just ready for. If that's the kind of property you're going to take over. Yeah. We, we've seen that before too. Uh, um, and in case the audience doesn't understand why would an owner do that, there's two main reasons. One, as you mentioned, uh, evicting people cost time, money, energy, and so on. And then the other side is when a buyer wants to get an agency loan, they usually require a property to have 85, 90% occupancy. So the sellers know that. So intentionally, they don't evict people. And unfortunately, we see that a lot more in the C-class environment. Uh, and the only way to mitigate that, like you said, Devin, is to underwrite for that. Underwrite a 30 40% economic vacancy in year one, knowing that not only all these people will have to go because they're not paying, but there will also be elements on the property that you don't want to keep, you don't want to renew. Uh, uh, and you're going to have to evict those too. So we also had a property that... Uh, when we bought was in the low 90s occupancy and very fast we we got to 64% occupancy <laughs> yep. between the people that we showed the door to and the people that left uh, right so big, big uh, jump if you if you model for it it's okay but if you didn't model for it that's, that could be big trouble yeah exactly so so that's a really good distinction um so tell us a little bit about um three ways that you guys like to increase income that is not raising rent. Yeah. So um, one, one that we did on the property that, uh, that I mentioned, it was kind of a heavy lift. We actually didn't model any rent increases. We modeled some modest year over year rent increases, you know, uh, kind of inflation uh, type stuff, but we basically, the business opportunity was to shift the utilities. So it was effectively raising rents, but we went in and did a rehab on a unit and said, we want to be able to lease this for the same amount, but just have the, the tenant pay the utilities. So that wasn't a strictly a rent raising um, play there, although effectively for the tenant, they're paying their bills. So their, their rent did effectively go up, but you know, we're able to kind of market the property at a pretty affordable rent. Uh, and then also that shifted like, you know, $200,000 a year off the property's expenses, right? Which is a huge impact on our net operating income. So that's, uh, that was one way that we did it on one property that, um, was not strictly raising the, the market rent or raising the advertised rent. Um, one of the other things is 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 just trying to tighten up utility expenses that might be switching over to led lights uh things like that or doing some kind of uh um you know the 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 water saving shower heads or low flow toilets those kinds of things if the property's if the property's paying any of those utility costs trying to reduce those as much as possible um and then just trim, you know trimming fat on the expense side i think the question was on was on increasing noi or was it just on increasing income increasing income there's a follow up about expenses okay gotcha yeah so income um it's 
it's tough because it's a lot of it is just really about that that rent number, right? And trying to trying to get the product to where it's going to support a higher rent based on that renovation. So there's um, there's not a whole lot I would say that we do that are that are big secrets in terms of in terms of raising income. I mean, there might be little things like covered parking that we could do. For example, we're buying a property right now that's got um, you know overwhelming majority of the parking spaces uh, are, are covered, uh, but they're not assigned and they're not charging anything for it. So that's kind of an easy revenue opportunity. It's not going to be huge, but it's a revenue opportunity that's already in place and we don't have to build the, build the covered parking. Like it's already there. You just didn't have an owner that's, that's paying attention to those kind of things with the level of detail that, that we will, because um, at the end of the day, we got to make the money for the investors. So we, we got to watch all that stuff. Um, you know, whether it's trash valet service and we can get a couple more dollars here or it's covered parking. And at the end of the day, it's not trying to nickel and dime tenants. It's trying to provide value, right? How do we provide value for people so that they want to stay, they want to refer their friends, they want to renew. So if having a trash valet is a valuable thing for, for residents, um, it might be not much skin off their nose, to pay a couple of bucks for that, but times 100 units, 200 units, you start to see a real impact on the net operating income. So little things like that, covered parking, trash valet. Um, we're starting to look at some storage options. Uh, I think we're gonna poll residents on one property where we've got some space to maybe build some storage and see if there's, you know, I'm not gonna go build it and then try to sell it. I'm gonna kind of poll the, the tenant base first to see if there's any, uh, desire there to pay a couple of bucks a month for some on-site storage, but we haven't implemented that. So, I, you know, I have to follow up with you and see if there's a, a revenue opportunity there. Yeah, that's a good idea. It also increases the stickiness of the residents, right? So yeah. if that resident has a, an apartment and a storage unit and he thinks about moving, now he needs to realize that he's going to have to move the storage unit as well. And it's, <laughs> it's a lot more painful to move out. So that, that helps with the retention as well. Yeah, that's right. Great. Um, what advice would you give a new operator? Yeah, I think um, depending on what kind of asset class you're, you're going for, um, I think it can be real important to try to get in a deal with somebody else that's much more experienced. And I think there's, there's, uh, there's certain things you're just going to have to learn on your own, but if there's a lot of other things I think you can learn by um, partnering or at least having somebody on the team that has a lot more experience. Maybe it's, it's just bringing somebody on and bringing somebody into your deal really as more of an advisor uh, or, or maybe it's just getting on somebody else's deal that's running it in, in a smaller capacity just so you can start to learn the ropes because it's not rocket science. It's not a, it's not an incredibly co uh, complicated business. I mean, it's just kind of math and, and, you know, um, just housing and some construction and, and stuff like that. But there, there is a lot to learn for somebody that's new. So I always kind of recommend that people don't try to go out and do a big deal on their own. Um, try to get into a big deal as a, as, in a small way, if that makes sense. So get on a big deal in a small way, in some way, shape or form. And then that's going to give you kind of going through that is going to give you a level of comfort. And it's, I always say that there's like a, in terms of learning something, you can get about 50% of the way there from books, podcasts, coaching, seminars, all these things, but you're really never going to get the other 50% of the learning until you go do it. So if you can get into a project with somebody or even a step before that, if you can just passively invest in somebody's project, 
you know, you put $50,000 in somebody's project, that's not going to give you an all access pass to call them 24 seven and ask every question, but it will give you a look at the deal and the financials and you can ask the sponsor a reasonable amount of questions. And that's kind of the easiest way. And then I would say, try to get onto a deal, um, you know, on the management team in some capacity and then just kind of grow into it. And then eventually, you know, a person will kind of understand that they where they are and and are they ready to kind of take the next step into a full-blown you know operating of the apartment complex i also do recommend third-party management because there is so much to learn in property management that i just don't think you're going to learn from a class or a course or anything like that and i think it's too my personal opinion is it's too much to go out and try and figure all that stuff out on your first deal figure out property management, figure out raising capital, figure out all asset management, all this stuff. Those are all like, you know, skills that take time to learn. And so, I, you know, I always advocate um, a third party management company so that you don't have to learn all that stuff and reinvent the wheel. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I would say if it's a 10 unit or a 20 unit, maybe you can take on self-management. Yep. But yep. Uh, if you're going over the, to the big ones, Definitely take somebody that has experience with you. Um, that's, a, that's a really good advice. So I like to ask uh, my guest is if you could go back 10, 20 years in time and you met young Devin, right? Uh, um, what would you tell yourself? What would be the best advice you would give yourself? Yeah, there's two, there's two tracks. Like one is, um, or two options, I guess. One would be, hey man, keep having fun doing what you're doing while you're young. Cause uh, you know, you're going to have a lot of responsibility one day and now's the time to freaking live it up. And, and, and I did when I was young and I have no regrets and now I do have a lot of responsibility, but at the appropriate time in my life, you know, I'm 40 years old. I have all this stuff that I need to manage, but I, I you know, I enjoy it. That's what a 40 year old guy does, you know, business. That's like my favorite thing to do. So I think, you know, young me had a, a lot of fun and uh, I, I kind of leave that in the past. But, you know, if in terms of imparting a nugget, I, real estate wasn't even really on my radar until uh, about 2012. And so um, I had just a massive learning curve uh, and I didn't start with any capital. So it was like a ton of work and nothing wrong with hard work. But, you know, if, if I would have known when I was 20 years old that, hey, you can start learning this multifamily business learning different aspects of raising capital and managing properties and then starting to uh, network, partner, meet other people. You don't have to go out day one and have a $10 million uh, net worth and um, a, a million bucks in the bank to go buy a property. A lot of times you put these things together with partnerships and you can kind of learn and grow through that. So I think, you know, that's what I'm teaching my kids now is, is with some single family stuff so they can at least start to learn the business to give them tools to kind of build their own portfolio. I think if I would have had those tools a lot earlier on, um, you know, I, I think that could have shaved a lot of the, the heartache and learning curve, but at the same time, I, I don't regret anything in the process, you know, all the, all the, the challenges and everything. I mean, that's just all part of the, part of the journey. Yeah. And, and we grow and we learn from every one of those, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know. I keep saying that if I could tell myself, uh, uh that 2008 was the bottom, right? Uh, that would be great. But uh, uh, no, if you're not allowed to say that, then I would just tell myself to skip the singles because I also started yes. singles 
just go yeah. straight up to multifamily, that would have completely changed the trajectory of where we are today and, and where we could be. Totally agree. I mean, everybody has this natural knee-jerk reaction to start small or even start with like, I'm going to start, like I started with a six unit, you know, I mean, it's just, it felt like that was the natural thing to do, but um, there, you know, you could spend a lot of time in, in that and it's maybe sometimes not even necessary. I agree. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, can you tell our audience where they can find you if they want to uh, talk to you or invest in one of your deals? How can they find you? Sure. Yeah, I'd welcome a call. Uh, you can go to the website, which is djetexas.com. Not to be confused with uh, another great <laughs> another great website that you operate, Joseph, but ours is uh, 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 com. That's the company. You can see you know, all kind of stuff, videos, everything. And then there's, you know, if, you, if you spend enough time on the site, you'll figure out how to book a call with me and I would, I would welcome that. Great. And we'll put links in the show notes uh, for that. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again in the future. Excellent, Joseph. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.